Well, good morning to you all. Today we begin a series of topical sermons that will explore and explain our church's statement of faith. In case you didn't know we had such a thing, it is a series of seven, guess what, statements, each beginning with the phrase, we believe, that briefly specify our core beliefs. They are very important because they are each a test of how we teach, how we preach, how we evangelize, in fact, how we live as Christians. Everything we do can be held up to them to see if we are right or wrong. And since this is so, we ought to be very familiar with them, and that is why we have decided to make them a preaching series for the next short while. Today we will be looking at number one, the Bible. I'll begin by reading from it now in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now this text is part of Paul's argument that the gospel, the most precious core of our faith, absolutely rests on the fact of Christ's resurrection. It says that if he was not resurrected, that faith is futile. Believers have no solution for sin and we are due only the deepest pity for our delusion. And that's a very familiar sounding accusation for Christians today, isn't it? That we are deluded. When Paul wrote this, the resurrection was near history. If questioned as to its truth, he could back up his statement by the testimony of numerous people who had actually seen it happen. But we do not have that luxury anymore. More than 2,000 years have passed by, and so those witnesses have long since become the dust beneath our feet. So, how do we put substance and direction into our faith? It must and can only be through our Bibles. But there is a problem though. Lying has become normal. We know that photos and films and newspapers cannot be relied on anymore. We rightly do not trust advertising. We do not trust emails we do not, above all, trust politicians. And yet it remains that the Christian's only proof for the gospel is a book written by humans, this book, the Bible. So, what do we say about that? We say this. We believe that the Bible is God's written revelation to man. It is divinely inspired in every word and absolutely inerrant in the original documents. We affirm the infallibility, sufficiency, and authority of scripture. Well that all sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? But so do lots of other things that turn out to be untrue. Let's try then to put some substance into this statement. Let's unpack it piece by piece to see why we believe it is true. We'll start with, we believe that the Bible is God's written revelation to man. Well, as I see it, there are two key words here, written and revelation. Have you ever wished that you could hear directly from God? You know, when you have a difficult decision to make and you don't know which way to go. 
Or maybe you're angry or depressed or lonely and you'd literally like to know what he says about that right in your ear. Well, you can, because God has written to us not just a note, but a whole book. It explodes with advice and showers us with knowledge about the world around us and most of all who God is. It tells us what he is like as a person and what he likes and doesn't like and what we should do about things. In it he has revealed himself in writing. That's what the revelation part is. It turns out that the word revelation is a much more interesting word than plain old revealed, although they do sound much alike. Revealed is uh, just a common or garden word. I pulled out the weed and revealed some mud. Ho-hum, there it is, mud. One would never talk about a revelation of mud. Well, (laughs) maybe you might, but that would be pretty weird. On the other hand, if you pulled out a weed and found a big nugget of gold, or perhaps a diamond... Ah, well that would be a revelation. Although its meaning is revealed or disclosed, which is quite ordinary, revelation is a word we generally reserve for specially exciting discoveries, and so it is a perfect word to use in connection with God, as we have done here. So now we must ask about the written, but why must we specify writing? Well, it's so obvious, Dave. It's in a book, so it must be writing. We must be specific about the means of revelation because God has not only revealed himself in writing, he has literally spoken to his people. Think about Jesus' baptism, for example. He has sometimes shown himself to his people. Think about Moses being hidden in the cleft of a rock. I'm sure that there are some other ways you can think of that God has used to reveal himself apart from the written word. And there is a theological term for this. All these types of revealing writing, speaking and appearing are collectively known as special revelation. On the other hand, there is also general revelation which describes how, without ever hearing of him, we can still sense God in the beauty and wonder of nature, in the way that history has been shaped and used, and in those quiet inner questions that lie in every human heart. How was I made? Why am I here? What will happen when I die? God has revealed himself to everyone in some way, Christian or not. So these are the reasons why we begin our statement of faith on the Bible by stating that it is the written revelation of God to humans. It's wow and it's words. But how did the words get written to show the wow? Did arbitrary men and women get up one day and say, I know, I think I'll write a book about God. Or did God miraculously manifest a finished copy himself? There it is, the Bible, bound in leather for years of unspoiled use, found on a path by a wandering shepherd. Well, actually, a combination of miracles and men isn't too far from the truth. The answer is there in our statement of faith. It says that the Bible is divinely inspired in every word. And this means that we believe that every single word of Scripture has come directly from God, somehow from his spirit to the writer's mind with his full authority and intent, but written out by a human's hand. I need to clarify, though, that not every word written is said by God. When we read the Bible, it doesn't come to us like that, like the text of a speech. We have to remember that it's also a historical document, and it records what many different people have said in their own right. We know, for example, some of the things that King David actually said. But why are they there? Why not other things he said? Because... Surely he was a talkative fellow like the rest of us. 
It's estimated that the average person speaks about 860 million words in their lifetime. So how come we got just a particular few from David? The answer is that, although he certainly said those things recorded in the Bible under his own will, they are only included in Scripture specifically because God wanted it to be so. It was God's will. He knew that he had something to teach us from them that fitted his purposes and therefore they remain divinely inspired. God picked them out for us to read today. So scripture includes both God's own words and the words of humans about him. To return to the matter of how the words actually got onto a page, you may have heard of a thing called automatic writing, which is a claimed psychic ability to produce written words without consciously writing them. And supposedly these words are channeled from a subconscious or spiritual source while you are in some kind of exalted trance. Health warning. Do not try this at home. Some folk claim that it is a way of communicating with the dead or receiving instruction from superior spiritual beings. And perhaps that sounds like what we are discussing here, but I'd like to believe it's obvious that there's only one kind of spiritual being behind automatic writing and that he is not at all a Christian's friend. My only reason for mentioning this practice is to remove any idea that some kind of automatic writing is how the human authors of the Bible received and wrote out the words of God. We can see that this is not true because it's very clear that each author has retained their individual style of writing, and their personality is reflected in the way that they put things down. It's not at all like a whole book dictated by one person. And please trust me when I say that many, many scholarly hours have been invested over the centuries on this very topic. Yet, it all seems so contradictory. How can it be that every word is inspired but still comes from a conscious human hand? Well, I don't know how is the short answer. And no one else does. We just have to accept that it's one of those miraculous things that God can do that by all human reason can't be done. Yet our Heavenly Father does them, and He does them easily, and it's not as though there is an ample evidence for this understanding. Apart from scholarly dissertation on literary content and style, what other grounds are there for the divine inspiration of the Bible? Oh, it's a lot, a huge amount. Scripture itself speaks about this matter a great deal. I did a quick search of the New King James Version for the term thus says the Lord, and came up with no less than 420 results. And when you think that there are big chunks of what the Lord actually said attached to this phrase, then we're really talking about a huge chunk of the Bible here. In 2 Timothy 3.16 we read that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, there it is, directly stated. But remember that the all scripture Paul is referring to here is what we call the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't by any means complete yet. Similarly, in 2 Peter 1.21, when drawing the reader's attention to the importance of Old Testament prophecies, Peter says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, if we start to add prophecy to thus says the Lord, we have further proof here 
that a great deal of the Old Testament is divinely inspired. There are many other New Testament passages that speak about the Old Testament in the same terms. Okay, how about the New Testament then? The direct evidence is not so plentiful, I must accept, but there are a couple of instances where we see New Testament writings being referred to as scripture, using the same particular Greek technical term that is used to describe Old Testament writings as being inspired by God. And we'll find one of these in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. It reads like this. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which are untaught, and unstable people twist to their own destruction. And here's the key phrase, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And that's that word, uh, scriptures here has a capital S and it's that Greek technical term that I was talking about. So Peter accepts that Paul's writings are God-inspired too. Now, if for the sake of further proving that New Testament writings are also divinely inspired by showing how they are consistent with the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament and how they are the fulfillment and realization of them and part of the overarching narrative, then we need several more servants and yet we still have the rest of our statement of faith to get through. Please, trust me, all scripture is divinely inspired. It's possible though that some of you may be thinking that I've been making a circular argument here by using the Bible to prove itself. And let me say that I'm not afraid to do that because Aside from the fact that I genuinely do believe that its words are the words of God and therefore completely trustworthy, I also believe that there are many excellent logical reasons for doing so. And I'd really love to explore them fully, but that would take ages, so instead we'll just step away for a couple of minutes here to watch a brief video clip that explains some of my confidence much better than I could. Lights and video, please. Can the Bible be trusted? Attacking the Bible seems to be a sport in the West today. Consider the different stories we've heard of Jesus in recent years, like the Da Vinci Code, the Lost Gospel of Judas, and the Lost Tomb of Christ. For 200 years, the Bible has been attacked from every conceivable angle. What has often not been revealed is how in the realm of scholarship, when investigated, these accusations have been falling flat. For example, let's discuss the reliability of the Bible. Question 1. How many ancient copies of the New Testament books are there? It's pretty obvious if you have more copies of an old manuscript, the more material there is from which you can assess its reliability. In fact, if you have enough copies, you can even identify copying errors and correct them. To give you some comparisons, today there are 9 or 10 good copies of Caesar's Gaelic Wars, 20 copies of uh, Livy's Roman History, and 2 copies of Tacitus's Annals. Yet most historians will accept these works as trustworthy history. The second most numerous ancient document from the ancient world is Homer's Iliad, the Bible of the Greeks, surviving in an amazing 643 manuscript copies. It's considered to be a reliable record of what was originally written. Now the surprising facts for the New Testament. There are over 5,600 Greek handwritten manuscripts alone. And when you add all the other manuscripts, there are well over 25,000 copies. 
It makes the New Testament the most highly documented book from the ancient world, something we would never have guessed if we only listened to the critics. Second question, how soon after the originals were written were the copies made? Obviously, the closer a book is dated to when the original was written, the less likely it is that copying errors were made or the story changed. So can the Bible be trusted? Let's look. For Caesar's Gaelic Wars, the time gap to the earliest copy is a thousand years. And for the second most numerous ancient document on the planet, the Iliad, the time gap is 400 years. This means that in this area of, of scholasticism, a 400 year gap means reliable. The surprising revelation is that there are undisputed fragments of the New Testament books from 50 or less years after the original was written. And there are complete copies of the books of the New Testament from a little over a hundred years. As such, there are closer copies for the New Testament documents than any other ancient work. In fact, the New Testament of the Bible is provably more accurate than Shakespeare's plays, and they were only written 300 years ago. And as if all this wasn't enough, we haven't even yet mentioned the writings that still exist from contemporaries of Jesus who didn't like him, but who still confirmed his life and miracles. We haven't yet mentioned the wealth of archaeological evidence that confirms the historic truth of the Bible accounts. We haven't discussed the hundreds of outstanding predictions the Bible has made which have come true, which are a miracle to be reckoned with. Can the Bible be trusted? More so than any other ancient document. The history in the Bible happened. What we've got to work out is why we either do or do not accept its claims. Well, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? The knowledge that facts like that lie behind the Bible. It's what makes me rather annoyed when I read letters to the editor suggesting that Christians are deluded or weak-minded because they believe in fairy stories from the Bible. After watching that little video clip, I have to ask, who is really deluded here? But that is a topic for another day. Let's now get to the rest of this section of the Statement of Faith, which goes on to say that not only is all of Scripture divinely inspired, but with regard to facts, note that word, facts, it is absolutely inerrant. That means without the tiniest error in its original documents. Let me explain. The literal interpretation of inerrancy means that we must take everything Scripture says and test it for accuracy. For example, in 2 Kings 19.35, we read that in one night the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. Does the inerrancy of scripture mean that it was exactly 185,000, not maybe 184,799? No, because inerrancy is about truth, not accuracy. If, for example, I say that I live a couple of k's outside town, not... 2.35 k's, as my rural number says, am I being untruthful? Well, certainly not. I'm being inaccurate, but I'm not being untruthful. And this is what we must understand when we are talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. In our example about the Assyrians, it is possible that more or less than the advertised number were killed. Although, I wouldn't care to suggest that sovereign creator God isn't capable of a precision strike. But, if the actual number was different, it doesn't change the truth that a very substantial proportion of the Assyrian army was destroyed by the angel of the Lord in one night, not by flood or fire or pestilence over several months. Their king left the building in a hurry 
and Jerusalem was spared just as God had promised. At this point I want to draw your attention to an important connection because we'll be referring to it again later. It is that since scripture is divinely inspired it must necessarily reflect the character of the one who inspired it. Although God used humans to write out his word and allowed their natural characters to shape the words, he could never allow them to alter any tiny part of his own character while doing so. They all wrote accurately about who God is, not what they thought he is. At present we are considering truth. God's character is never ever less than absolutely truthful. What he says has done, is doing, or will do, will never be found to be different in any way from how he describes them. And that's very good for us, because what would it be like if God were not so? We could never be sure about anything in the whole Bible, could we? And what would be our hope of salvation if we were to appear before the judgment seat only to hear that God had lied for fun about the atoning blood of Jesus? You see, we need that surety desperately throughout our lives because without it we are adrift and at the mercy of the wind, waves and currents of that life. We may think that we have the necessary tools in our senses to navigate the rapids on our own, but they are easily fooled. We may think the wind is taking us somewhere nice, but actually we are approaching a whirlpool. We need someone with a higher viewpoint to show us where it's safe to go. Now, you might think that's nonsense, that you have a perfectly good grip on things, and so you know how to react in every situation. Well, this morning I want to burst your bubble a bit. I reckon a practical demonstration of the need for an external measure of truth will now be helpful, but to do so, I need a volunteer. And I promise inerrantly that no harm or embarrassment will come your way. And I think you'll find it interesting. Okay, so I would like you to take your right index finger, please, and stick it inside this glass of water. Uh, what can you tell me about that water? It's very cold. Yep, very cold. Okay, now take your left index finger and stick it in this glass of water. What can you tell me about that glass? Well, it's pretty hot, isn't it? Okay, I just want you to keep it there for a moment and, and, uh, and we'll see how we go. Okay, take, take the finger from the cold water and, and just stick it in that glass in the middle. What, what can you say? Huh, it's hot now. It feels hot. But I thought you said it was cold just now. Alright, we'll take your left finger from the hot water now and, and put it into the... Oh... <laughs> now you think it's freezing. Well, let me tell you, the, the glass in the middle is actually room temperature water. The problem is that your senses can be so easily fooled because they're relative. We can only tell if things are hotter or colder than the last thing that we touched. And so, you know, no one can say, well, this glass of water is 32.5 degrees Celsius and that one's... 0.1 degrees Celsius. Nobody can do that. We can only say it's hotter or colder. And the problem is that our morality measure is the same. We compare it about what we've, uh, we've done or heard is right or wrong before. 
And that's why we so desperately need the firm guiding hand of Scripture because our own hands are shaky and easily fooled without anyone else's help. This is why we hold Scripture so high because it gives us a strong handrail to hold on to and a light for us to walk in at the same time. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to the last part of our statement of faith. We affirm the infallibility, sufficiency and authority of Scripture. First up, why do we use this fancy term, affirm? Is it just to make the statement look cool and important? Why can't we just use say, for example? Well, there's a good reason. You see, affirm is a word with a much more solemn meaning than good old say. It has legal connections. For example, one of its meanings is to make a solemn declaration before a magistrate, all the time being aware that there is a serious penalty for not speaking the truth. To affirm something, you need to have a really strong conviction that what you are saying is true and can be proven to be so. So it's not surprising that this is the most appropriate word to use here because we do firmly believe that Scripture is God's word and that therefore it is infallible, sufficient and authoritative and we are prepared to be challenged over that. So let's look at some of these words. What does it mean that scripture is infallible? It means that scripture is not able to lead us astray in matters of faith and practice. Because it is infallible, you can always trust its rules, its advice and its insights to be the right thing to believe and do. Now, that infallible word can be hard to hear. We've all heard some variation of the two rules theory. For example, rule one, the coach is always right. Rule two, in the unlikely case of the coach being wrong, refer again to rule one. Well, <laughs> we know that's rubbish because the coach is frequently wrong, and so is every other human, but we can't confuse our character with godly character because he is completely different to us. And Isaiah reminds us of this vast gap in 55, 8-9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my way, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, it is God's character that gives us the answer here to why scripture is and must be infallible. God is not like the coach. He does not tell lies. He is all truth. God does not ever make mistakes. He is all wisdom. God does not change his mind. He is infallible. And so there is no need at all for rule two. Since the Lord inspired all scripture, it must by necessity echo his character. And so scripture's character will never contradict the character of God. If it were not, we would have nothing. The book would be useless and so would our every effort to live in a manner worthy of God, since at some or many points we would be following advice that is wrong. As our opening scripture said, we would be, of all men, the most pitiable. Next, what does it mean that Scripture is sufficient? The official definition is that it's the idea that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. So basically that means that God fed his people exactly enough revelation to meet the needs of their relationship with him 
at the particular time they were living. Adam and Eve had it, real simple. They were told to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, and don't touch those trees. Well, we know how that went. So God had another go with Israel through Abraham, and they had the five books of Moses, including a whole bunch of rules, what we today call the law. And that was supposed to direct their walk with God. But we know how that went as well. Finally, God fixed things for good. He sent his son Jesus to die for human sin, to reconcile man to God and to restore creation to the perfection it was supposed to have had. That came along with a whole lot of extra material in the form of the New Testament. So today we have every single piece of information we will ever need in this book right to hand. And that is going to work out perfectly. You might be asking, why did God do things this way? Why didn't he make it so that the Adam and Eve easy three-step plan for eternal life with your creator thing didn't fail? I don't know. Scripture doesn't spell it out for us and we can only speculate that it has to do with, I don't know, maybe freedom of will. That's one possibility. That God valued our freely choosing his way so highly that he was prepared to allow us to completely mess everything up. But, like I said, we can't be sure and speculation ultimately is a waste of time. It is a waste of time because scripture is sufficient. Right now it contains all the information we need to have for our own times. We shouldn't waste time worrying about other people's times. Right now we know what to do and what not to do. We know where salvation lies and does not and we know we must share that. We know a great deal about the nature and character of God and we know what we ought to be getting on with. There is no need to try to add anything to the book that God has given us. Once again, it's helpful to look to God's character. If scripture was not sufficient, it must necessarily then be deficient in some or many ways. And since it was inspired by God then, so too would its author, a deficient God. That's a really alarming prospect, for if God were lacking in any way, it means that he is not the ultimate authority or power over creation, because he then needs some help from some other similar or greater power to control it, or maybe alternatively to powerlessly allow chaos to have its way. He would then only be a God with a small g. We must then ask what would happen if this third party or force had different designs or intentions for creation or perhaps even didn't care about what happened to us because they would be of similar or greater power than God what might happen to us then who would prevail and what would happen to us who were caught in the middle fortunately this is not the case God is the only sovereign God there is absolutely no one like him in knowledge or wisdom or ability No one is as righteous or holy or merciful as him, and we have the distinct blessing of his personal interest. He uses all of his great power to help us, and so we have no cause for fear. He is sufficient, and so is his word. Finally, we come to the authority of Scripture. This is linked directly to its divine inspiration. It says that since all the words of Scripture come directly from God, To disbelieve or disobey them means to disbelieve and disobey God himself. We don't have direct access to God today, but we do have his words 
and they carry just as much authority as if he came down physically and spoke them to us right now in this room. Now, I'll ask you to pay rather close attention here because this is really profound. I know that you've been listening to me for some time now, but that shouldn't be the reason to let this bit slip past your ears. The Bible is not just a book like any other. It is and contains the very words of God. Words he has particularly and specifically selected for us, for me, for you to read. When we read them, we hear him. We, we hear God. The maker of the whole universe is speaking to us. Now, I don't know who your particular hero is, a sports star, a pop idol, or maybe a preacher, whatever. But imagine if you could connect with them whenever you wanted. How exciting would that be? <laughs> Here we have just that opportunity. And what do we do with it? Are we eagerly and excitedly seeking out the Lord's voice at every chance we get? Or have we left it by the bed for weeks? A Bible is the most important and valuable thing you own. Not your house, or your car, or the collection of beetles you have from Ecuador. For none of those things have eternal consequences. The question is, which of them, the Bible or the beetle, carries the most dust? Let us pray.